This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, December 20th, 2019, episode 78, concerning the character of William Rufus. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. I don't know about you, but one of the things that has put a major dent in my productivity these last couple of months has been the near-daily whirlwind of news about the American impeachment inquiry, or now impeachment proper. I have to confess, uh, it feels a bit like an addiction to me. Uh, Perhaps not a chemical addiction, but some sort of dopamine hit definitely accompanies each new headline that pops up in my newsfeed. Well, since the discourse around impeachment keeps circling around these core questions of the character and intentions of Donald Trump, I thought we might look today at an account of the character of another contentious and largely unpopular leader, William II of England, or William Rufus. We'll hear William of Malmesbury's portrait of the king. As a historian, he does have to tread carefully here. On the one hand, William Rufus was broadly unpopular among the clergy and among quite a few of his barons. There's less clear evidence for what his popularity was among the common people. Uh, We have some kings who were judged quite harshly by their own courts and by history, who nonetheless were able to command the adoration of the people. Richard II and Henry VI come to mind. But given that William Rufus is the son of William the Conqueror and only the second Norman King of England, there's less reason to believe that the English commoners loved this still essentially foreign ruler. The clergy and the nobility saw William as overextending his power, as tyrannical. As for the people, well, the accounts of the king's court leaving a path of plundered devastation in its wake as it crawled across the country from manor to manor and castle to castle like a caterpillar chewing its way around a leaf with local people literally fleeing into the hills to get out of its reach. Um, The caterpillar's one image, a kind of Mad Max ravager cannibal caravan is the other. Anyway, these kinds of stories just provide more reason to think that few people, regardless of where they were on the social ladder, were especially grieved to hear of the king's sudden death in a hunting accident in the year 1100. So, our historian, William of Malmesbury, has this side of William's legacy to deal with, But, on the other hand, he is writing his Gesta Regum Anglorum 25 years after William Rufus' death and during the reign of the youngest son of the Conqueror, Henry I. Even though Henry's relationship to his older brother was itself complicated, it still wouldn't be prudent for our historian to portray the king's deceased brother and predecessor as a total monster. The royal bloodline still demands a certain degree of respect. So, While I think you will undoubtedly find that William of Malmesbury's portrait of William Rufus is censorious and unflattering, it is, in fact, not as harsh as some others. William even tempers his criticism of the king somewhat by asserting that the king's vices were really the product of a kind of unfortunate or perhaps pathological excessiveness of his natural virtues. But William's description of the king is of particular interest because he does actually produce a coherent portrait of the king's character. Many other historians of the era convey the personalities of their subjects only through brief comments and anecdotes scattered through the chronological survey of the events of the reign. William's Gesta Regum Anglorum, 
history, or deeds of the kings of the English follows a different template. So let's have a little historiography lesson. When William of Malmesbury sat down to write a grand history of the kings of England, he had a few models to draw from. Certainly, he was already rooted in a medieval historiographical tradition of both Norman and Anglo-Saxon histories, annals and lives, both of saints and kings, but behind these lie the classical historians, and most particularly the two great Roman historians of the empire's first dynasties, Tacitus and Suetonius. I say these lie behind the medieval histories because that's our common metaphor of literary evolution, that it's a kind of accretion or family tree ever building from one generation to another, but that's really rather misleading. Uh, Picture William of Malmesbury's work table. Well, that is, let's pretend he had a work table or desk or whatever. We actually know he did quite a lot of his work while traveling around, so who knows what his actual working process was. But on this imaginary work table... You've got books stacked up, all of William's antecedents and sources, and Tacitus and Suetonius aren't at the bottom of those stacks, the foundational things he read first before moving on to the more recently composed books. That's what we might expect with our 21st century assumptions about continual literary and scientific progress that later authors supplant earlier authorities. But in the 12th century, the assumption was largely the opposite. The assumption was of decay and decline of the present as a pale and inferior imitation of the Golden Age. Even though authors like William tried to challenge this narrative and asserted the value of their own work and bemoaned having to defer to classical authority, that classical bias still affected them, and when it came to seeking a paradigm to emulate or even adapt, all eyes still turned to imperial Rome. Well, A few also turn to 8th century Jero and the Venerable Bede, whom William certainly places into the same historiographical pantheon as Tacitus and Suetonius. Anyway, that's all lengthy preface to a fairly simple observation, one made by Marie Schutte in a notable article about William's style from 1931, which is that in crafting his account of the Angevin kings, he follows the model of Suetonius rather than Tacitus. Tacitus wrote his history of the Roman Empire as annals, as a year-by-year, event-by-event account. Suetonius, in contrast, wrote his The Twelve Caesars as a series of biographical portraits, employing a topical pattern that we've seen echoed in the classical structure of a saint's life. Um, You can go see episode 58 of this show on the life of Odoric of Pordenone, for an example. The Suetonian pattern is to start with the subject's family, birth, and early life, and education. Then you move on to early service, military and or civil, and then how they attained the imperial throne. So the pattern is generally chronological so far. Events of the reign are then presented, but divided into categories of domestic and foreign events, and civil and foreign wars. Then we get a section on the character of the emperor, broken up into discussion of his virtues and vices, particularly as manifested in behavior towards different classes of people, friends, enemies, family members, etc. Then you get a description of his physical and mental qualities, followed by a list of the emperor's opera, or works, divided into writings and infrastructure projects, especially buildings constructed during the reign. And then the biography concludes with an account of the subject's final days, death, burial, and the distribution of their property and their will. And then everything is summed up with a survey of contemporaries' judgments of the subject. 
William adapts this pattern to his purposes, uh, but he does largely follow it in his account of the Angevins, and we'll be hearing his section on the character of William Rufus. Though the Tacitan model has tended to dominate Western historiography, uh, perhaps exemplified in the way we tend to conceptually distinguish history and biography as separate genres, even though both are historiographic, uh, so though Tacitus seems to be the more natural organizational pattern for history writing, the Suetonian portrait might have felt especially appropriate for the reigns of the Angevin kings that William was writing about, William the Conqueror through Stephen. The historian J.E.A. Joliffe uh, has argued that the Angevin kingship was particularly shaped and dominated by the personalities of the kings and by their individual desires and grudges. It is the era where the power of the monarch is described in the categories of vis et voluntas, force and will, and ira et malevolentia, anger and malice. Those are the two poles of energy by which the king makes things happen. And, to my mind at least, there's no small echo of those ideas in the present debates over executive power and prerogative. But that leads into a deeper discussion for a future episode. Back uh, upon Trump's election, I promised more episodes about King John, where the conflict over this concept of kingship really comes to a head. Um, and I'd like to finally get to that, maybe in the new year. And on that subject, I'd welcome suggestions for good medieval texts describing John, uh, especially anything that has an English translation that is either in the public domain or that has a translator I can actually get in touch with to secure permission. Uh, so, if you have any ideas or leads, do please send me a tweet at mdtpodcast or email me patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. And with that, let's get into the text. Here is William of Malmesbury's account of the character of William Rufus from his Gesta Regum Anglorum, as translated by John Sharp and J.A. Giles. Greatness of soul was preeminent in the king, which, in process of time, he obscured by excessive severity. Vices, indeed, in place of virtues, so insensibly crept into his bosom that he could not distinguish them. The world doubted for a long time whither he would incline, what tendency his disposition would take. At first, as long as Archbishop Lanfranc survived, he abstained from every crime so that it might be hoped he would be the very mirror of kings. After Lanfranc's death, for a time he showed himself so variable that the balance hung even betwixt vices and virtues. At last, however, in his latter years, the desire after good grew cold, and the crop of evil increased to ripeness. His liberality became prodigality, his magnanimity, pride, his austerity, cruelty. I may be allowed, with permission of the royal majesty, not to conceal the truth. For he feared God but little, man not at all. If anyone shall say this is undiscerning, he will not be wrong, because wise men should observe this rule, God ought to be feared at all times, man according to circumstances. 
He was, when abroad and in public assemblies, of supercilious look, darting his threatening eye on the bystander, and with assumed severity and ferocious voice, assailing such as conversed with him. From apprehension of poverty and of the treachery of others, as may be conjectured, he was too much given to lucre and to cruelty. At home and at table with his intimate companions, he gave loose to levity and to mirth. He was a most facetious railer at anything he had himself done amiss, in order that he might thus do away obloquy and make it a matter of jest. But I shall dilate somewhat on that liberality in which he deceived himself, and afterwards on his other propensities, that I may manifest what great vices sprang up in him under the semblance of virtues. For, in fact, there are two kinds of givers. The one is denominated prodigal, the other liberal. The prodigal are such as lavish their money on those things of which they will leave either a transient or perhaps no memory in this world. Neither will they gain mercy by them from God. The liberal are those who redeem the captive from the plunderer, assist the poor, or discharge the debts of their friends. We must give, therefore, but with discrimination and moderation, for many persons have exhausted their patrimony by giving inconsiderately. Quoting Cicero, For what can be more silly than to take pains to be no longer able to do that which you do with pleasure? Some, therefore, when they have nothing to give, turn to rapine, and get more hatred from those from whom they take than goodwill from those to whom they give. We lament that thus it happened to this king. For when in the very beginning of his reign, through fear of tumults, he had assembled soldiers and denied them nothing, promising still greater remuneration hereafter, the consequence was that as he had soon exhausted his father's treasures and had then but moderate revenues, his substance failed, though the spirit of giving remained, which by habit had almost become nature. He was a man who knew not how to take off from the price of anything, or to judge of the value of goods, but the trader might sell him his commodity at whatever rate, or the soldier demand any pay he pleased. He was anxious that the cost of his clothes should be extravagant, and angry if they were purchased at a low price. One morning, indeed, while putting on his new boots, he asked his chamberlain what they cost, and when he replied, three shillings, indignantly and in a rage he cried out, you son of a whore, how long has the king worn boots of so paltry a price? Go and bring me a pair worth a mark of silver. He went, and bringing him a much cheaper pair, told him falsely that they cost as much as he had ordered. I, said the king, these are suitable to royal majesty. Thus his chamberlain used to charge him what he pleased for his clothes, acquiring by these means many things for his own advantage. The fame of his generosity, therefore, pervaded all the West, and reached even to the East. Military men came to him out of every province on this side of the mountains, whom he rewarded most profusely. In consequence, when he had no longer aught to bestow, poor and exhausted, he turned his thoughts to rapine. The rapacity of his disposition was seconded by Ralph Flambard, the inciter of his covetousness, a clergyman of the lowest origin, but raised to eminence by his wit and subtlety. If at any time a royal edict issued that England should pay a certain tribute, 
it was doubled by this plunderer of the rich, this exterminator of the poor, this confiscator of other men's inheritance. He was an invincible pleader, as unrestrained in his words as in his actions, and equally furious against the meek or the turbulent. Wherefore, some people used to laugh and say that he was the only man who knew how to employ his talents in this way and cared for no one's hatred so that he could please his master. At this person's suggestion, the sacred honors of the church, as the pastors died, were exposed to sale. For whenever the death of any bishop or abbot was announced, directly one of the king's clerks was admitted, who made an inventory of everything and carried all future rents into the royal exchequer. In the meantime, some person was sought out fit to supply the place of the deceased, not from proof of morals, but of money. And at last, if I may so say, the empty honor was conferred, and even that purchased at a great price. These things appeared the more disgraceful because in his father's time, after the decease of a bishop or abbot, all rents were reserved entire to be given up to the succeeding pastor, and persons truly meritorious on account of their religion were elected. But in the lapse of a very few years, everything was changed. There was no man rich except the money changer, no clerk unless he was a lawyer, no priest unless, to use a word which is hardly Latin, he was a farmer, that is, farmarius. Men of the meanest condition or guilty of whatever crime were listened to, if they could suggest anything likely to be advantageous to the king. The halter was loosened from the robber's neck if he could promise any emolument to the sovereign. All military discipline being relaxed, the courtiers preyed upon the property of the country people and consumed their substance, taking the very meat from the mouths of these wretched creatures. Then was there flowing hair and extravagant dress, and then was invented the fashion of shoes with curved points. Then the model for young men was to rival women in delicacy of person, to mince their gait, to walk with loose gesture and half-naked. Innervated and effeminate, they unwillingly remained what nature had made them, the assailers of others' chastity, prodigal of their own. Troops of pathics and droves of harlots followed the court, so that it was said, with justice by a wise man, that England would be fortunate if Henry could reign, led to such an opinion because he abhorred obscenity from his youth. Here, were it necessary, I could add that Archbishop Anselm attempted to correct these abuses, but, failing of the cooperation of his suffragans, he voluntarily quitted the kingdom, yielding to the depravity of the times. Anselm, than whom none was ever more tenacious of right, none in the present time so thoroughly learned, none so completely spiritual, the father of his country, the mirror of the world, he, when just about to set sail, after waiting in port for a wind, was rifled, as though he had been a public robber, all his bags and packages being brought out and ransacked. Of this man's injuries, I could speak farther, had the son witnessed anything more unjust than this single transaction, or were it not necessary to omit a relation which has been anticipated by the eloquence of the very Reverend Edmer. Hence may be perceived how fierce a flame of evil burst forth from what the king conceived to be liberality. In repressing which, as he did not manifest so much diligence as negligence, he incurred a degree of infamy not only great, but scarcely to be wiped out, 
I think undeservedly, however, because he never could have exposed himself to such disgrace had he only recollected the dignity of his station. I pass over, therefore, these matters slightly, and hasten in my composition, because I blush to relate the crimes of so great a king, rather giving my attention to refute and extenuate them. So, there you have a character study of William Rufus, a man whom his subjects hoped might grow into the dignity of his office under the guidance of wise and experienced counselors once he took the crown, but who instead just got worse and worse the longer he held power, and the wise counselors found themselves displaced by sycophants and mercenaries. Hmm. But let's talk about shoes. William of Malmesbury is not the only chronicler to note this curious fashion that arose for shoes with long, pointed toes. These are associated with the alleged debauchery and moral decay of William Rufus's court. William of Malmesbury only lightly touches on this theme compared to many other chroniclers. One who expounds on it at much greater length and with more vitriol is Ordric Vitalis. He tells us that these shoes were invented by Folk, the Earl of Anjou, to help conceal a deformity of his feet. Here's Orderick's account, starting with the shoes, and then moving on to broader criticism as a kind of medieval moral fashion police. This count, the Earl of Anjou, was very blamable, and even infamous in many parts of his conduct, and abandoned himself to all sorts of vices. His feet being deformed, he had shoes made of an unusual length, and very sharp at the toes, so that they might conceal the excrescences, commonly called bunions, which caused his feet to be so ill-shaped. This new fashion became common throughout the West, and wonderfully pleased light-minded persons and the lovers of novelty. In consequence, the shoemakers, in making shoes, shaped them like scorpions' tails, vulgarly called pigaces, a fashion which almost all the world, both rich and poor, are wonderfully taken with, while in former times, shoes with round toes, fitted to the form, were in common use by both rich and poor, clergy and laity. But now, men of the world sought in their pride fashions of dress which accorded with their perverse habits, and what formerly honorable persons thought a mark of disgrace and rejected as infamous, the men of this age find to be sweet as honey to their taste, and parade on their persons as a special distinction. A debauched fellow named Robert was the first about the court of William Rufus who introduced the practice of filling the long points of the shoes with tow and of turning them up like a ram's horn. Hence he got the surname of Cornard. And this absurd fashion was speedily adopted by great numbers of the nobility as a proud distinction and sign of merit. At this time, effeminacy was the prevailing vice throughout the world. 
men reveled in vice without remorse, and odious wretches who ought to have been food for the flames shamefully abandoned themselves to the foulest sodomitical practices. The habits of illustrious men were disregarded, the admonitions of priests derided, and the customs of barbarians adopted in dress and in the mode of life. They parted their hair from the crown of the head on each side of the forehead and let their locks grow long like women and wore long shirts and tunics closely tied with points. They wasted their time, spending it according to their own fancy and without regard to the law of God or the customs of their fathers. The night was devoted to banqueting and drunkenness, to silly talk, dice, tables, and other games. Thus, after the death of Pope Gregory and William the Bastard and other religious princes, the simple habits of our fathers were abandoned in almost all the west of Europe. They used a modest dress, well fitted to the proportions of their bodies, which was convenient for riding and walking and for all active employments, as common sense dictated. But in our days, ancient customs are almost all changed for new fashions. Our wanton youths are sunk in effeminacy, and the courtiers study to make themselves agreeable to the women by every sort of lasciviousness. They insert their toes, the extremities of their bodies, in things like serpent's tails, which present to view the shape of scorpions. Sweeping the dusty ground with the prodigious trains of their robes and mantles, they cover their hands with gloves too long and wide for doing anything useful, and, encumbered with these superfluities, lose the free use of their limbs for active employment. The forepart of their heads is bare after the manner of thieves, while on the back they nourish long hair like harlots. In former times, penitents, captives, and pilgrims usually went unshaved and wore long beards as an outward mark of their penance, or captivity, or pilgrimage. Now, almost all the world wear crisped hair and beards, carrying on their faces the tokens of their filthy lust, like stinking goats. Their locks are curled with hot irons, and instead of wearing caps, they bind their heads with fillets. A knight seldom appears in public with his head uncovered and properly shaved according to the apostolic precept. Their exterior appearance and dress thus exhibit what are their inward thoughts and how little reverence they have for God. So, what do both William of Malmesbury and Orderic Vitalis find to be wrong with extravagant fashion and pampered hairdos? These are considered markers of effeminacy. This is quite a charged term, and there are interesting if uncomfortable threads of continuity with the present day in what it implies, but there are also differences. One of those continuities is a small-c conservative understanding of gender as absolutely not a spectrum, um, that it is a strong binary and any muddying of the sharp distinction between male and female is unnatural. And the cultural distinctions between male and female, you know, dress and manners, are treated as no less important than biological sex differences and are taken to be just as inherently natural. There are exceptions and challenges to this in medieval literature itself, uh, but I think it's fair to say that this attitude that we see manifested by our two historians was common. 
And you can find a version of it easily enough today among those who profess to be scandalized by public recognition and tolerance of transgender people or gender fluidity. So one of the problems with effeminacy for the medieval moralist is this unnaturalness. Men should not adopt the customs of women. But unlike the connotations of the word today, in most of the Middle Ages, and indeed up into the criticism of the 18th century fop, effeminacy was not assumed to be a marker of homosexuality. An article by Susan Shapiro with the delightful title, Jan Plumed Dandebrat, Male Effeminacy in English Satire and Criticism, discusses the different associations the accusation of effeminacy had. In the Middle Ages, uh, it does change a bit as you get into the 18th century, uh, but in the Middle Ages, you had a kind of old classical misogyny at work where women were associated with being sexually voracious and promiscuous, and this was the primary sexual connotation of the effeminate man. He's a sex maniac. One of the reasons for all the emphasis on fashion and grooming is because he's all about the game of seduction. Now, homosexuality can be implicated in this inasmuch as this hypersexuality was frequently perceived as a kind of pansexuality. Uh, the effeminate man is a swinger who will hop into bed with any number of partners in any combination of sexes. We do see a bit of that in Orderic Vitalis's language and his reference to Sodom, uh, so there is an element of homophobia in the moral criticism, but it's kind of a small part of the larger picture of hedonistic debauchery. What William and Orderic are defining as effeminate fashion would also encompass the bell-bottomed leisure suits, gold chains, and careful hairstyling of John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. Uh, although, indeed, you can find sneering reactions at the time to disco fashion, uh, just as you still see contempt directed towards metrosexuals today or any of the modern variations on the dandy. This complaint recurs through later eras. It was a stock insult that the Puritans lobbed at the royalist cavaliers of the 17th century. Uh, Shapiro cites one example by a Puritan, William Prynne, author of, among many things, a tract entitled The Unloveliness of Love Locks from 1628. In it, Prynne writes, quote, Is it not now held the accomplished gallantry of our youth to frizzle their hair like women and to become womanish? not only in exility of voice, tenderness of body, levity of apparel, wantonness of pace and gesture, but even in the very length and culture of their locks and hair? End quote. William Prynne was certainly not one for vanity. Having been convicted of publishing libelous and seditious texts about the king and queen, he was sentenced, in addition to fines and imprisonment, to have his ears cut off. That was in 1634, in 1637, he was convicted again of pretty much the same thing, and had the remaining stumps of his ears removed all the more completely, and further he was branded on the cheeks with the letters S.L. for seditious libeler. A Puritan revolutionary to the core, Prynne bore these marks as badges of honor and went on to some prominence in Cromwell's protectorate after the execution of Charles I. One of the books that got Prynne in trouble was a 1,000-page-long tract against the theater called Histiomastics, the Player's Scourge or Actor's Tragedy, which seems to have taken as its initial complaint the unnaturalness of men putting on women's apparel on the stage, and then the invective metastasizes from there. 
the early 19th century writer Isaac Disraeli, uh, father of Benjamin Disraeli, called Prynne, quote, a voluminous author without judgment, end quote. That is, the kind of writer who can never let just one example serve when he knows a hundred. All of the author's knowledge gets disgorged onto the page, which is how you wind up with 1,000-page-long screeds. I have a feeling Prynne would be very at home with a certain strain of internet manifesto writer. Anyway, this is not Restoration Death Trip. Um, But let's conclude with something not quite so late, but ever so slightly post-medieval, depending on how you mark the boundaries. This is a riddle-slash-joke from the Demons Joyus, printed in England in 1511. And here it is. Why come dogs so often to the church? That's all there is. Why come dogs so often to the church? Any guesses? Well, here's the early 16th century answer. Because when they see the altars covered, they wean, or think, their masters go thither to dinner. I'm guessing most churches, in the modern developed world at least, probably don't have too much of an issue with dogs just wandering in. But this little joke does paint us a picture of the different conditions of the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Churches as open-door public spaces would have had a somewhat different atmosphere than most of us are probably used to. As you may have noticed, uh, we're still in a bit of scheduling discombobulation over here, uh, but I will be back with another episode in the near future with more medieval textual exploration. While we're in the last bit of this holiday season, you can check out a medievalish Christmas music playlist that I put together on Spotify. Uh, I'll post a link to it on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, uh, and also on Twitter, where we are at MDT Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can either tweet at me or email me at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Uh, right now, my inbox is a bit of a wreck. Uh, that's set for a New Year's cleanup job, so Twitter is probably best if you really want to reach out at the present moment. You can also support us through Patreon. You can find Medieval Death Trip if you search Patreon for us. Uh, I'd like to recognize our new patrons that have uh, joined us since Halloween. Erica, Josh, Caroline, James, and Dylan. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, I am working on the new audiobook that will be released for our Patreon supporters. Um, It's not going to be on time for Christmas, alas, uh, but I'm hoping we'll be able to ring in the new year with it. So, until next time, remember, wear your hair however you like, it's the holidays, and thanks for listening. <laughs>